0: Hello and welcome to the Gamers Tavern. This week we're continuing our campaign setting series with The Sixth World. What, did you think we are only going to be doing Dungeons and Dragons settings? Yeah, this is another podcast on Shadowrun from the Gamers Tavern, but come on, it's such a great setting. This episode, we're focusing on the campaign setting that made the Shadowrun game come alive. So grab a drink from the bar and take a seat at the table in the corner while I tell you a little bit about our sponsor, Audible. While there's not currently any Shadowrun books on Audible, all the influences of the setting are there. Neuromancer, Snow Crash, Lord of the Rings, Dresden Files, and anything else you want from fantasy and cyberpunk, or, you know, any other genre you want. There's over 150... Thousand audiobooks on Audible. You want to get started? Just go to audibletrial.com/gamers tavern and start your free trial, which includes a free audiobook for you to keep. Because if, for some strange reason, you don't love the fantastic members-only savings on all purchases, the free monthly book downloads or the special deals only available to members, you can cancel and keep your free book. Just go to audibletrial.com slash gamers tavern and get started with your free trial today.
1: was always baking since the world's awakened We didn't start the fire Though the corpse don't like it, still we try to fight it Joshua, J Armitage, Deadman, Switch, Dragon Ball Horrors within reach Steel and Booth are both impeached List of candidates is long Race from President is on Leonardo goes to war Candidates neglect the poor Big D and Hefner win Light begins to shine again Then double on, is dead and gone Suspect list goes on and on We didn't start the fire It was always vacant Since the world's awakened We didn't start the fire The corpse don't like it. Still, we try to fight it. Oppressive darkness back again. Kyle Hefter sworn in. Dragons will frustration. Draco Foundation. Scott Commission. Astral Rift. Children of the Dragon. Strain three in Chicago. And AI's loose. Oh no, I haven't. Sally song, Dodger or the dragon lung, I think I left out twist and dirt, striper, skater, shadow work, anarchy in the six world grows, wanna thank the little crows, so much more to talk about, I can't get all of it out! It's quite uncommon. We didn't start the fire, though it is our planet, so let's save it, damn it. We didn't start the fire, it is always bait.
2: Welcome to episode number 44 of the Gamers Tavern Podcast. I'm your host, Ross Watson.
0: And I'm Zero Mott Jr.
2: And tonight we have with us two great guests from the sixth world of Shadowrun, Mr. Rusty Zimmerman. How's it going, everybody? And Mr. Steve Bull, the Orc Decker, Ratkovich. Yo. Welcome to the show, guys.
3: Great to be here.
2: Yes, good to be here. Thanks for having us. Oh, absolutely. Well, this is actually Rusty's second time on the show, um, so welcome back. Thank you, sir. But, and uh, it's-
0: Kind of Bull's second time in sort of a <laughs> roundabout way. Technically, uh, because, yeah. Because uh fans of our Gamers Tavern Game Table Shadowrun actual play podcast will remember that Bull's infamous character Bull the Orc Decker made an appearance. Though he was at that point in time played by RGM Brendan Ginsimer.
2: Correct. Now anybody who's listened to our show actually knows without a shadow of a doubt, we are Shadowrun fans. And this will actually be like the third Shadowrun-centric <laughs> episode we've done.
0: Oh, two, but we did one on Cyberpunk, but we ended up talking about Shadowrun. Uh, well, uh, yeah, that's why I'm counting
2: it as the third. <laughs> <laughs> so before we jump into the main topic, though, let's do what we always do with our guests. We ask them to tell our listeners a little bit about who they are and where the listeners might know them from in the, the format of a gaming character sheet. Now, Rusty Zimmerman has done this before, so I'm going to ask him to go first.
3: In terms of what people might know me from, uh, I guess uh, we could put these down as my reputation scores. Uh, I am primarily a Shadowrun freelancer. Uh, I've been working with the company for, I think, about four years now. I kind of got started with them through Attitude and have touched just about everything that's come out since then uh, in terms of major source books and stuff. My biggest Shadowrun contributions uh, in terms of the ones that I, I guess maybe I'm proudest of... I gotta start with the novella Neat, uh, and the adventure pack Elven Blood, uh, and then probably the little ebook Way of the Adept. Uh, those were all pretty big hits and, uh, give me some street cred, I guess.
2: Yeah, they're absolutely all great products. But are you an elf? Uh,
3: I am unfortunately not. Uh, it's just the genetic lottery 2011. That's is- just <laughs>
2: what an immortal elf would say. <laughs> that's,
3: that's true. But, yes, 2011 has come and gone, and I do not seem to have freakishly grown any long ears, because there was a few that did, you know, awaken into their elf and Uh However, it seems to have skipped me, for the moment at least. We'll see what happens if the mana level keeps rising and Haley's Comet swings
2: by. All right. Well, God. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh Thank you, Mr. Zimmerman. Let us ask Bull the Orc Decker... Steve Rakovich, what is your gaming character sheet like and how much edge do you have?
4: Oh my <laughs> god, I don't even know. Uh I'm pretty sure I've burnt most of my edge, unfortunately. Uh I have the worst luck, so my edge goes all gets spent on a regular basis. Uh eh, I'm say I'd say I'm a uh couple hundred karma Shadowrun character. So to speak. Uh I've been around the block a few times now. I started playing Shadowrun with First Edition, and uh I got involved in an official capacity in one form or another back in 96, 97, somewhere in there, at Gen Con. Uh, I started helping out, volunteering at the conventions, doing running events and, and tournaments for Shadowrun, and then uh, moved on to playtesting and eventually freelancing. My first work for Shadowrun was back for FASA. Man, I don't even remember now. <laughs> dragons, dragons of Six World, maybe
0: that was Fan Pro.
4: Okay, well, Dragons of Six World, Year of the Comet, yeah, they were published under Fan Pro, but they had been started under FASA. Uh-huh.
2: This this uh, this particular IP has changed hands so many times at this point.
4: Yeah, it's, it, it's,
2: it can be tough to keep it all straight. <laughs> it is
4: it is one of the most complicated IPs, especially when you start trying to figure out who's got the electronic rights and.
2: Yeah, exactly.
4: Oh, it's a mess. It is. But I love it, and I've doggedly followed it and stuck with it through multiple hands and multiple developers and multiple owners.
2: Well, I have to ask, are you an orc?
4: Yes. (laughs) For all all (laughs) intents and purposes, yes. The only thing I'm missing is the tusks, and I have a pair of those I carry with me.
3: Nice. That is also what an immortal elf would say.
2: <laughs> uh, I am.
4: Uh, I, I can assure you I am not an immortal elf. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
4: Which is also what an immortal elf would say, so what can I
2: do? Yes, but you of course speak Orzette, so... A little bit. Okay.
3: <laughs> I, to, to my eternal shame, somebody actually mentioned, that a Shadowrun fan on Facebook, said they were flying into Portland the other day, and I didn't need to look up a basic sparethial greeting and, and stuff. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, this, this is perfectly balanced between pride and shame that I knew the name <laughs> of the tier airline they were flying in you know, on, and, and I wished them good, you know, it was, it was kind of unfortunate. Well, you did write
4: the, uh, the Karasir book. Yes. In Portland. So, at least there's that. You have an excuse.
2: Yes. <laughs> well, yes. He is not mechaniggy. <laughs> so. Yeah, sorry, you're just showing off a little bit. (laughs) That's all right. This is good. Anyway. Uh,
4: Anyways, just to finish off my character sheet, um, I currently am a part-time employee of Catalyst Game Labs as the Shadowrun Missions line developer the Living Campaign.
2: Well, that is awesome. So we now want to talk about what we have been playing lately. I'm going to start with Daryl. Daryl, what have you been playing lately?
0: You always start with me, man.
2: Okay, okay, fine. No, I'm I, saying
0: it's, pro- it's probably because I'm never playing shit, but... Well, you uh, know what?
2: I <laughs> can go with someone else tonight. That is not a problem. Well,
0: well, we've been playing the game table for Dungeons, the new edition of Dungeons & Dragons, Woo-hoo! and that's been going fun. Uh, we had a little bit of an abbreviated session, but it was still a blast. Um, I also played a few board games this weekend. played Suro, which is uh, coincidentally enough... Dragons flying around and trying not to run into each other. It's a really elegant, beautiful game, too. And we played a couple of other things. I started trying to put together, uh, the Shadows, uh, Brimstone. Uh, uh, that's gonna take me a while to get all those minis put together, though.
4: I'm so jealous. Sorry. I'm, I'm still waiting on my Kickstarter copies. So. Uh, what is this game now, Derek?
0: Uh, it is from Flying Frog. It's their new game. It's kind of, uh, it's a dungeon crawly kind of game, very similar to in ways uh fantasy flights descent kind of sort in a roundabout oh way. Right. Like okay. You're dungeon crawling and there's two core sets for it. And I got one of the, they gave me one of the two as a review copy for any cool news. And it's got a lot of miniatures in it. It's a hundred dollar board game. So it has a lot of miniatures, a lot of cool stuff in there, but it does require some assembly and you know me and I am not a modeler. So it's taken me some time to get all these little arms glued on to all the little stuff. But it's uh, basically Old West meets Cthulhu instead of the standard fantasy tropes. So it's really, really cool. One of the protagonists is a preacher, which is really awesome.
2: Cool. Uh, let's ask Mr. Zimmerman. What have you been playing lately? Honestly,
3: my my most recent gameplay was all the stuff at Gen Con. Uh, we've had a, a scheduling nightmare since then because so much of my gaming group goes to Dragon Con every year, and then my semester just started up, so I'm busy teaching, and we actually haven't been able to get the gaming group together since I got home from Gen Con, so I, I do get to brag a little, and then I finally got to play Eclipse Phase. I've owned Eclipse Phase since it came out, uh, <laughs> and I was finally to, able to get to roll some dice uh, and tell a crazy story uh, in a, a little pick-me-up game at Gen Con. Um, Did you go I- to
2: the space station made out of bacon?
3: I did not, unfortunately, or I guess fortunately for the structural integrity of the space station made of bacon. But it's kind of funny, about half of the group were playing enlightened pigs, uh, so that might be why they sent us elsewhere. Uh, <laughs> cultural they sensitivity. They might have been offended. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, the station
0: made of bacon, if I'm not mistaken, is sentient.
3: Well, of course it is. It's clip's face. Uh, it, it, why wouldn't it be? <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was
4: all I need is to go there with a flamethrower and a bottle of barbecue sauce. And I'm
3: <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, other than Man, that, I mean, it's, uh, it's just been kind of pickup games since Gen Con. We've played a couple games of Smash Up, which is just a stupid fun little card game. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I got my group hooked on it and then we all chipped in and bought the expansions. And I'm kind of pestering my wife. We've been trying to do kind of a, a little solo or round robin type of game. Just the two of us forever. Uh and we're maybe settling on old school Water Darkness uh Anarchs in LA type of madness. So wow. I've been making that a character fabulous. for that, yeah. So uh but unfortunately I haven't actually played since Gen Con. I've read through One Ring, read through the new D and D stuff and that's been it. Just lots of research and not a lot of dice rolling.
2: Wow. Crazy stuff. All right, Bull, why don't you tell us about what you've been up to lately? Well, unfortunately,
4: much like Rusty, I haven't been able to do any RPG stuff in a while. I haven't actually played any RPG since before Gen Con. We wrapped up, right before Gen Con, we wrapped up a uh, Shadowrun campaign we've been running for the last six months or so because the guy who was our GM was heading back to college for his master's degree. We have another Shadowrun game. We're trying to get back on track, pick up the um, Shadowrun missions campaign we were playing. But that's been a matter of getting everybody's schedule to uh, coordinate. So otherwise, I've just been doing lots and lots of uh, board gaming and card gaming. Uh, I didn't actually get to play a whole lot at Gen Con, other than uh, demoing Crossfire, because that was pretty much my entire life at Gen Con.
2: Crossfire. Oh wait, that's <laughs> the uh, that's that's the one that came out in the '80s. I'm sorry. That's the, we're we're
4: gonna we're gonna do a we're gonna do a crossover expansion with that.
2: A cross-crossfire?
4: The- <laughs> yes, yes. We're going to do a crossover <laughs> crossfire. Uh,
2: nice.
4: No. <laughs> Which would be amusing. but um, You know,
2: that game had the most awesome uh, TV commercial of all time.
0: It really it did. It was such a letdown. <laughs> I think I still have my copy. It was a bunch of ball bearings and two little things, and you're just shooting at them. Yeah, it, it, it also didn't really help. I was an only child and didn't have a lot of friends in the neighborhood, so I was like grab one gun in one hand and one gun in the other hand and oh, try to no, play ow. against myself. So. Oh,
4: no. That's that's so sad.
0: I know.
2: <laughs>
4: wow. I, I at least could beat up on my little brother. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sorry, no, different other, Crossfire. So what about, what yes, about the real Crossfire?
4: Uh, I, I demoed the real Crossfire about a million times at Gen Con, which was fantastic and a lot of fun. But oh my god, is that game hard. <laughs> I, I keep telling everybody that it basically makes Arkham Horror and Pandemic look like easy mode.
3: Nice. Nice. I hear We've the laid. intro fiction is amazing, though.
4: Well, you know. <laughs> oh. I'll let Hey-o. you know. Yeah. Rusty wrote the intro fiction and he's very proud of it. <laughs> I don't know. I was kind of a little let down on it, you know.
3: That's it's just because you, you can't land. read. Shh,
4: nobody's supposed to know that.
2: <laughs> now,
4: Rusty did a fantastic job with the intro fiction. It, plus, it actually comes with the, uh, with the first chapter, I think, of Fire and Frost, so it was really pimping out the fiction there a little bit which was kind of fun the game itself is is fantastic but like i said it's just it's bloody hard we've played 8 or 9 games now and i think we've actually managed to succeed once wow it's it's, ugh, it's brutal but it All is right. it is a ton of fun
2: well that's For, good to
4: hear
0: correct wrong, um, it's kind of like a cooperative deck builder in a way
4: yes yes okay. it is it is a cooperative deck building game you each take you each take the role of a shadow runner there's the, the five core races. There's four. Um, there's four main roles: face, street, sam- street samurai, decker, and mage. That determines your starting deck. There's a black market that you can buy more cards from to build up your deck as play, as play goes. You're facing off against obstacles that you have to overcome. And then there's a mission card. There's several different missions that the game comes with that you can play through. They give you different scenarios that you have. To, that they have different win conditions. So. Like I said, it's a lot of fun. It's really interesting. Um, at the end of each game, you get karma. So you keep your characters from game to game. And then um, there's upgrades you can buy for your character that give you advantages in the next game you play. So really? it's a makes for a nice little uh, campaign game. Well, very cool. The other game we've been playing a bit of is the uh, Pathfinder. I picked up uh, Skull and Shackles, the new uh, Pathfinder deck builder uh, game. And that's been a lot of fun as well. That one's because cool. it's also a campaign style game.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I was just about to say it sounds sounds a lot like the adventure card game in a way. Well, it
4: is. It's it's the it's it's the new version of the adventure card game.
0: No, I meant the, uh, the the Crossfire sounded like. Oh yeah,
4: uh, yeah, yeah. In a, in a lot of ways. Yes. Yeah, there are some similarities. I mean, game game style and everything's very very different, but the the campaign mode is a little similar. And then there's okay. the various card games and stuff here and there.
2: It sounds like you are a big time card gamer guy.
4: I I love card games. I love I love any games, honestly. Board games, video games, card games. I mean I'm playing Star Trek Online and Defiance right now a little bit. What?
2: What? Stop, hold the phone. Back the Enterprise up. Yes. You play Star Trek Online? I do. (laughs) Guess guess who else plays Star Trek Online?
4: I'm gonna guess you.
2: That is correct, sir. I have been just playing the crap out of that. Um, all right, excellent. Get, you looking forward to Delta Rising? You bet I am.
4: Oh yeah, should be some interesting stuff there.
2: Oh, we're gonna have to talk after the show a little bit that here. So, that
4: sounds like a plan.
2: Catch up on uh, you know, what we're playing and, and all that. So <laughs> absolutely, yeah, yeah, exciting,
4: exciting. Yes, I am. I know. I know that currently there's the big thing about how this is such an evil word, but the fact of the matter is, is I am a gamer. I am. I play everything.
2: Well, super cool, man. That's that's great to hear. As for what I've been playing lately, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) What have you been playing, Ross? (laughs) No, see, he picks right up on that cue. Bam! I don't care. You you know, you should really look into uh, podcasting. (laughs) You should really look into podcasting there, Bull. You're you're good at it. So what I've been playing lately, we've got our uh, D&D 5th edition game uh, that is going to happen tomorrow. We're all really excited about that. That's our game table, which is run by Daryl Mott Jr., our game master. That's me. And we, uh, I also started up my own D and D fifth edition campaign uh, just this weekend for a new Birthright game. Nice! Yeah! Cheers from everybody out there in Birthright land.
4: Wait a minute! Wasn't that a? Wasn't that a? That that was a, that was a really terrible uh, version of D and D, wasn't it?
3: Ooh. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm just teasing. You are no longer the game words. <laughs> 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 I am the gatekeeper. It has been retracted.
4: I'm just, I'm just kidding.
2: No, it was, uh, you know, Birthright was uh, an old second edition setting. It's probably my favorite, and I'm getting, I'm loving the chance to bring it out and dust it off, and you know, kind of get other people introduced to it um, through the fifth edition lens. What time? Um, are, and of course,
3: what time are we starting? I just invited myself. <laughs> 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 Very good, sir. Very good.
2: If only um, you were a little closer to me, I'd invite myself too. Oh, you guys are Birthright fans. Oh, yeah. Or just D&D fans.
3: Well, I, yes. I have not I've liked what I've seen of, of D&D next or fifth edition or whatever we're supposed to call it now. Um, I haven't gotten to play it yet, but I like pretty much everything I've seen for it. And I think it'll be awesome for those old second edition adventures and, and that feel. Um, yeah, I, absolutely. I think it'll fit that real well.
2: It does. You know, we actually did a podcast episode about fifth edition. It should be popping up on uh, the radar. Any moment now, and you can go mm-hmm. listen to us talk about it in depth. I think we decided between ourselves that on the show, we're going to call it D&D 5 or D&D 5th edition. Yeah, um, the
0: official name is just Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Internally, they were calling it, uh, 5th edition. Anytime they have to reference it, D&D next was just a codename temporary title that they had for the playtest. So pedantic mode over. Go ahead.
2: The other thing I'm really looking forward to, of course, is the, Director's Cut edition of Shadowrun Dragonfall. Ooh, yeah. We talked to Mitch Giedelman at Gen Con about this. Mitch, of course, is the COO and co-founder of Hairbrain Schemes. And he had some really exciting news to tell us about that because as anyone who knows me uh, knows I love Shadowrun, they also know that I loved Shadowrun Dragonfall as one, of, I think it's one of the best computer RPG experiences I've ever had. And making that better? Holy cow, yes, where do I sign? Yeah, Dragonfall was a lot I'm, of fun.
3: I'm not sure what they can do to it to make it much better. How um, about
2: loyalty missions for each one of the the the, the characters? That yeah, I guess that'll work.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: improved combat AI, yeah. uh, improved
2: graphics. Yeah.
4: Isn't it supposed to be a little more open world now to and like even more so than it was before? A little less
2: not, I don't know for sure about that, but I can tell you I don't really care. I mean, they had me at Loyalty Missions, and yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm showing up to, to, to the table on that one with fork and knife in hand ready to eat it up with gusto. So <laughs> I can't wait. So that's going on, and then uh, we are also starting up a fourth edition Champions game. We're going, you know, we're just like, we have like a whole old school thing going on right here tonight, I think. Nice. Uh, Rusty's playing uh, an older edition game. Uh, I'm playing an older edition game. So, yeah, we're playing a 4th edition Champions game run by Lee Langston here in town, and he's doing a uh, kind of a low-powered, uh, you know, Justice League and World War II type game. And, of course, uh, Sean and my roommate, has already created Dr. Omnibus, and I have built Citizen Spectre, Nice. and together we will be fighting on behalf of the Alphas. It's going to be great. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Um, and that's pretty much it. I've already talked about uh, Star Trek Online and... Assassin's Creed 4, I'm playing that. I'm late to the party, but, you know, it's good. All right. So that's what we've been playing lately. Let's talk about Tavern Tales. Now, Tavern Tales normally, on the Gamers Tavern is we ask our guests to give us a memorable die roll from an RPG that they've been in recently. But given tonight's special theme, I'm going to ask for instead a memorable Shadowrun. And I'm going to ask Rusty to go first. Rusty, can you tell us a little Tavern Tale about a memorable Shadowrun?
3: I'm actually going to give you a twofer, because as Uh-oh. soon as you mentioned die roll, I thought of a Shadowrun die roll, but then I'll, I'll, I'll also do an adventure. My no, Shadowrun... You know,
2: p- whichever one's better is fine. Yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll
3: start with the die roll. It was a quick one. Uh, and this was a third edition game, and I shot down a Hughes Stallion uh, armored cargo helicopter with a single round of an Ingram supermock. Which was, which is the submachine gun notable for having a six light damage code.
2: Uh, Can you even fire that thing on single shot?
3: Yes. Oh, yes. That used to, that was my go-to for most of third edition was uh, a single round and a burst, which stayed recoil neutral with the build I had.
2: Nice. But yes,
3: I had a round of anti-vehicle ammo left after our Renraku Arcology run where we'd been using it on drones, and this was some little just kind of, you know, between runs quick job that the GM threw a monkey wrench in by bringing in my character as an NPC so that there were three groups after this drop, and the bad guys had a chopper. I had one round left of anti-vehicle ammo, and then we had to decide how it was that I shot the stallion out of the sky with a single shot of, you know, essentially 9 millimeter ammo. But yeah, that was my <laughs> my super awesome street samurai slash adept guy uh who had an eleven in his specialty with the Ingram Supermock by the <laughs> end of his shadow running nice. career. Um so he just put all his combat pool into it, aimed to get the target number modifier, and and blew that mama jama out of the sky. Nice. So yeah, it, it's kind of like it's the die roll that jumped into my head when you said die roll. Nice. In terms of, of a favorite adventure, I guess really recently my big one for Shadowrun was running basically playtest sessions of ancient pawns, which was the first adventure I wrote for Shadowrun. Shout out to Bull, the missions developer. Uh, he's an okay guy, but nobody tell him I said that. But,
4: uh, <laughs> I, I, I heard he's a real jerk.
3: <laughs> that, that, that too is correct. <laughs> but no, it just, it, it ends up, it, it was just so much fun to run it. I, I ran a couple playtest sessions, uh, and then with Bull's permission, I also ran it at a couple of local conventions before it was out. To me, the highlight moment of that, it, it's basically an ancients themed wild goose chase where the adventurers or you know the shadow runners are are running around all night kind of doing jobs for the ancients the elven street gang their leadership and it's kind of a war by proxy where you're serving one new faction and there's some npcs that are mostly off screen that are also running around for the other faction and you can run around and do the stuff in whatever order you want and in game, you've got a one hour time limit that kind of corresponds to the convention four hour time limit. So, you know, you're always looking at the clock and you're racing everywhere and, and this, that and the other. And to me, the best moment from it, one of the side gigs is basically just go torch this humanist safe house. There's humanist poly club group that has a meeting here and they're just hanging out playing poker unless you decide to make it more difficult as the GM. But it's just kind of a second string humanist poly club safe house. And they're like, just wreck it and videotape it or something and give us proof of you guys wrecking it. And that's, that's the only instruction. And what this group ended up doing was ramming their, their ancients colored Land Rover through the front wall of this, this building. Uh, and then just everybody leaned out a window and started shooting people. And it was the rigor, the, the group driver that had me in stitches. This was her first time ever playing an RPG. Her, her boyfriend, her husband had dragged her to it. Um, and we're trying to explain that, you know, everything's electronic and, and, you know, use the matrix as the internet and cool stuff like that. And because she kept going last, she ended up consistently getting the kill everybody else would shoot first and the, the NPCs would dodge and soak most of it. And then, you know, there'd be this barrage of auto fire and then she'd just go pop, pop. With this Aries, you know, predator and, and killed like two guys. Uh, and she did the same thing. Yeah, it was, it was all, she was loving it. Her boyfriend was playing a street samurai and he was getting a little frustrated by the end of the night because I don't think he actually killed anybody. He just kept on, you know, mauling them. And then she'd come in and be like, oh, he just, boys can't do anything. Pop, pop, you know, yeah. But, uh, it was I, we I loosened it the for Humanis you. Honey. Poly Club. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so we're doing the Humanist Poly wow. Club one. Uh, and then she kind of just leans down with the window and goes, pop, pop. And then she goes, Hey, wait a second. What's a smart link again? And we're describing, Oh, yeah, it's one you don't forget your bonus dice <laughs> and it's a little camera inside your gun. And she goes, Wait a second. And you said that everything's wireless. And I've got this cool Comlink thing, right? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, and and we're supposed to be videotaping this anyway. So I'm gonna tell my SmartLink to record like three seconds before and after every time I shoot. And then I'm gonna drop that shit on Vine. So so she was basically live tweeting gunfights for the whole night with, you know snippy one-liners of dialogue and the ancients logo superimposed and then streaming it back to belial and nice. the rest of the game <laughs> so so at the end of the adventure after the kung fu fight on top of a moving semi-truck that you're hijacking they, they you know there's everyone's having fun with it and then they they come driving back to this, you know, the drop off point and I'd specifically changed it so that the, uh, the ancients were a couple of streets down the block, uh, where TVs were for sale. So they'd been watching everything. They'd hacked into the feed on the wall of televisions, uh, y- you know, uh, the, the trid sets on display in the front of this building and they were watching all her kill shots on loop. So she just, she was tickled with it. Everybody had a great time. And, uh, it just really, it was, it was really cool just to, you know, see absolute strangers come together and get some of the potentially over the top fun of a universe like that. So it was, it was really awesome.
2: That is, that is pretty badass. Is that a, is that a fourth edition adventure or a fifth edition adventure?
3: Uh, they were fourth edition. Uh, Ancient Pawns okay. was actually originally a standalone adventure. But it is now the first adventure in the Elven Blood adventure pack, which, uh, again, I lobbied Bull, the missions guy, uh, after he asked me to write a series of adventures set in the Elven country of everyone knows it's supposed to be Sheer Shangir, but I always say Teer Tangier, and I literally wrote the book, so I win. (laughs) I I was able to talk Bull into letting me put Ancient Pawns in there uh, as kind of a prequel adventure. So it's in there with the rest of this kind of elf themed thing. Okay. And for the record, that's also why the cover that's to Urban right. Blood has a human in Ancients Gang colors is because in Ancient Pawns, the first adventure, you are lent, you know, gang jackets and vests and stuff for the night. Uh, so for one night only, you can have a troll running around squeezed into <laughs> a, a biker jacket with the Ancients A on the
2: back. Nice. Okay, what about you, Bull? Uh, Have you got a good story for us about a Shadowrun?
4: Oh, man. Bull the Orc Decker has a long legacy of just amazing and awful stories. My GM that ran for for that character was uh, Stephen Tenner, who did Critical Glitch podcast before he passed away, and he was an amazing GM. Yeah. And just... I, just, I, I could probably spend four hours just giving you stories. But my favorite one, and it has it's still one of the best adventures for Shadow and Ever, was the night we played The Universal Brotherhood Missing Blood Adventure. Oh uh, yeah. Yep. Tinner's younger brother, Ken, had come home for the weekend from college and he was getting married the following week. Uh so we were having a bachelor party for him. And since Ken, nor Steve, nor most of us really, especially back then, drank or did anything like that we decided the best way to have a bachelor party was to have a marathon gaming session. So, we had our current group of Shadowrunners and we had Ken's friends who had played Shadowrunner Shadowrunner under Tenner under Steve Tenner yeah, a few years prior. We got everybody together for one big group and we played through Missing Blood. And the fun part about it was is that Tenner had been very careful about how he let us read in from how, how we were able to access information about the Shadowrun world at that time. So there were some books and some information and stuff that we were not allowed to read because it kept our characters as, it, it basically kept us as ignorant as our characters, which was fantastic. So going into Missing Blood, we had played, uh, what's the one with the, um, the actress who gets turned into a bug? Queen Euphoria. Queen Euphoria. Thank yeah. you. We had played Queen Euphoria, so we kind of knew a little bit about the bugs, but we didn't know a whole lot. A couple weeks prior to this, Bull's wife had started working, had started volunteering for the Universal Brotherhood, and Bull was a little suspicious of them because they seemed a little too squeaky-cling. So he had hacked into their servers and had gotten a hold of a file that was heavily encrypted. And that was the, um, the booklet, the Universal Brotherhood booklet that came with that adventure. So basically, as... We, were playing, we started playing Missing Blood. Bull starts encrypting this. And Tinder decided that since it was such a heavily encrypted file, I could only encry- unencrypt it one page at a time. And if I stopped hacking it, basically if I stopped reading it at any point, the file would self-destruct. Wow. So the rest of the team continues playing this. Meanwhile, I'm over in the corner reading this one page at a time. <laughs> And so basically the team is lugging Bull's unconscious corpse around with them while he's jacked in and reading. And so I'm just sitting here reading, and of course, as it just gets worse and worse and worse as you go, because you're reading about these investigative reporters that are finding more and more bad stuff out about the Universal Brotherhood. So I'm just sitting in the corner going, crap, holy crap, oh shit, we're (laughs) fucked. Sinner's like, yeah, you guys hear this but you can't talk to Bulls. Bull, you're not allowed to say anything else. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so as we're going, they're, they're, they're continuing on with the adventure, but they're all getting nervouser and nervouser because I'm just freaking out in the corner. <laughs> and, they, and I can't tell them why. And it was just such an amazing experience because it was just, it really ramped up the tension and everything. And then, like, as soon as I finished that file, I threw it down. I'm like, holy shit, guys, this is what's going on. ah. <coughs>
0: <laughs> and everybody <Guys>. went,
4: what? <laughs> yeah. and it, was just, it was just great because it, just, it, it really helped maintain that tension for the game and, and really made it more... It just became such a much more serious thing than it otherwise would have been.
2: That's a great story, but I think it also has a lot to do with what we're, our topic is tonight, which is the sixth world of Shadowrun. And I don't think that any of us would disagree that Missing Blood um, and the Universal Brotherhood yeah. in general... Is a key linchpin in what is the sixth world? Oh, not at all. Yeah, definitely.
4: I wouldn't just definitely would not would not disagree at all.
2: You know, and as I was doing my research for this uh, topic tonight, something I, I came across that I I guess I knew on a certain level, but I didn't really grok until I, I went back and, and double checked. The guy who wrote the Universal Brotherhood and missing and missing blood is, of course, Nigel Finley,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: it's. Surprising to me, even now, and I'm a guy that's played Shadowrun since the very first edition. It's surprising to me, even now, just how much we know about the sixth world, thanks to Nigel Finley. That guy, you know, he wrote Shershen Geyer. He wrote Aztlan. He wrote the neo anarchist guide to real life. He even wrote Lone Star, Denver, and the Native American Nations books. I mean, if you look at, like, the big tentpole things that kind of hold up what is the Sixth World as, you know, this awesome circus that it is, nine out of ten of those were written by Nigel Finley, by one guy.
3: Yeah. Um, I mean, it's oh, yeah. uh, Paranormal Animals of North America and the New yeah, Anarchist yeah, Guide yeah. to North America also. I mean, everything you had basically for, for the North American continent in the first couple years of the game, you know I mean anything that you research for all that stuff, he was also heavy on the the Denver box set too, because it just yeah, I that's mean, what it's, I said the, yeah. okay sorry I, was, I didn't know yeah
2: A Denver and uh, corporate shadow files on yeah. top of that
3: it's just i mean anywhere you go in in what we nowadays call North America, you know, and that's not counting of course his excellent fiction or the harlequin's back, which I think you could argue is another one of the kind of not as much of a pillar of the Shadowrun experience, but it's definitely a definitive moment to right. to gamers that remember it. You know, it's it's and this another is, yeah.
2: yeah. Th- this is kind of where I'm going with all of this is it's not just because one guy wrote it that it's awesome because you know, Nigel Finley is a very very talented was a very very talented uh, guy. You know, he he did have an awful lot of talent. But what I think is the thing um, that I'm getting at here. One of the reasons why Shadowrun as a setting, the sixth world, as it stands, is so strong and so resonant with gamers, I'm going to throw out there, I think, that one of the reasons why is that it has a sense of consistency. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think a big part of that consistency, you have to lay at the feet of Nigel Finley, for sure. But not just him, right? Because there was a whole group of creators that seemed to kind of all just kind of get it. They were all... I don't know, part of a hive mind, part of a group think. You know, it's it's difficult for Dowd, me to say. Tom
0: Paul Hume, um yeah. Oh, yeah. Those are the first things that come to my head. Mike
2: Mulvihill and Steve Kenson of course. Uh those mm-hmm. two guys were like living in each other's heads, you know. So for uh for for a long period in the the actual like publication of World material for Shadowrun. It, it, it had a really, really strong sentence continuity and a really, really strong sense of consistency of tone and themes and tropes and things of that nature. You know, it something that's really exciting about Shadowrun as a setting. I don't think there is any other cyberpunk world that has been as heavily detailed ever. Not that I can think of. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm trying to think, uh, Night City was never detailed even nearly as much as Seattle
3: alone was. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and remember, you know, Seattle now has been what three or four times over. You know, I mean, yeah. I I can't think of another cyberpunk setting at all that even if you're just talking page count has yeah. has nearly as much potential for having been detailed. There, there's been an awful lot of of Shadowrun written in the last 25
2: years. Right. As my we, bookshelves will attest. <laughs> you know, you go, this is the thing. Might as well. You go back and you look at, like, the, the, the books that have been written about the, uh, the world of Shadowrun. And for my money, some of them are just brilliantly fantastic. I mean, we, anything written by Nigel Finley, I'm just gonna say is, is really damn good and worth your time. But in addition, there are books that, uh, like California Free State, okay? This book should not have worked. <laughs> I mean, it just flat out should not have worked. It was like this big conglomeration of writers that we hadn't really seen or heard from before. Uh, Mike Mulvihill was, uh, was one of them. But it, it went into some really great places. And I, I love California Free State. It was the first book that made me think, maybe I should run games you know elsewhere than Seattle. And then you got, uh, of course, the great Denver box set. You got, you know, uh, one of my first exposures to Shadowrun as a setting, um, a- apart from the core, was uh, Sprawl Sites. You guys remember Sprawl Sites? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. Sprawl, Sprawl Sites featured- is a
4: fantastic book.
2: Well, it features writing from future uh, New York Times best-selling author Mike Stackpole. And yeah. I didn't really know that until I was doing some research on that today. I was like, well, that may be a good example of why I like it so much as a setting book, <laughs> you know. And then, you know, remember, I was saying uh, uh, Mike Mulvihill. Holy Mulvihil crap, I st- never noticed that. Mike Mulvihill and Steve Kenson were living in each other's minds. Um, and you get some really great books out of that that helped develop what Shadowrun's about, like Magic in the Shadows, uh, which I think is uh, just a fantastic book about, like, magic in Shadowrun. And Threats, which was, you know, one of our first... Books that sort of talk to us about some of the bigger picture bad guys, you know. Oh, yeah. And of course, Steve Kenson knocked it out of the park with the whole, you know, Duckles on Secrets, which again expanded on what that universe was about.
3: Uh, Portfolio of a Dragon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's another one that I consider kind of a, uh, a watershed publication. Absolutely. There are a few books that you can kind of, define like what generation of Shadowrun player someone is and i don't think it has anything to do with additions uh i think it is did you play harlequin's back renraku arcology shutdown slash brain scan did you play you know it's kind of what what which of these big
2: moments were your characters around for yeah where do do you know who halberstam's babies are from virtual realities oh yeah uh but yeah Dowd and christopher kubisik
3: but I, I think there's there's definitely books that are like that, d- I guess defining or or cornerstone or uh, you know whatever you want to call them publications instead of just this is our book of guns and cars for this year, or you know whatever. There were ones that and there's were, a lot of those. Oh yeah, yeah. There, <laughs> there, and, there's, there, and there's there's cool stuff in those too. But, you know, there's some... I mean, cyber
0: technology. Cyber technology, it was beyond before. Here's a bunch of new gear for you. No, there was a lot yeah. more going there on was, in cyber technology. The hatchet man, man.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, man. The cyber zombies. Yep. You
0: know, even if you don't even use those things, ju- even just the descriptions of the equipment, just the Because fir- everything's all first person in the way it's told. It's all stolen documents inside the world.
2: Well, that goes back to the, you know, the very first um, Street Samurai catalog. Yep. Where they were basically doing world building in the equipment guide for the RPG. Yeah. Which is a pretty cool thing. I mean, it was something you hadn't really been seen before.
4: No, that was always fantastic. And I know that's something that fans always want to see more of. Oh, yeah. Which, unfortunately, gets harder and harder to do as you get more and more gear you need to detail.
3: Yeah, well. well. I think it goes back to the consistency issue also and that it also kind of gets harder and harder to do to an extent, you know, the more people you have working on it.
2: Yeah. The, well, the consistency thing, I mean, there's so many things that can impact consistency of writing, especially on a setting. And I, I think unfortunately Shatterrun, um stumbled a few times and that's because you know, there's so many things we could point to, but I, I think I would probably point to one of the biggest ones being the, the as we said before, it changed hands so many times. Right. And, and there was, uh, there have been times when you've had new developers come in and they, you know, they kick over the sandbox and then another new developer comes in and kicks in the sandbox, you know, and, and so you have, I, I think there was a period of time and I want to say it was, you know, probably good 10, maybe 15 years of Shadowrun that was very, very consistent. But, uh, since then, it unfortunately has not had the same, the same track record. I, I think a lot
3: of that just has to do with kind of changes, patterns, in the industry, you know, how many years did Chris Claremont write every X-Men story Right. versus nowadays where people get contracted for five or six issues of something that they know will be a trade paperback and then they go somewhere else? Uh, You know, that same sort of thing, I think, is there's been a paradigm shift in the gaming industry where, you know, back in the day, you know, you'd see several of these pivotal source books. Uh, you know, like we mentioned Finley and Shadowrun, but, you know, it also goes, you know, Mark Reinhagen and, you know, some of the other big names in, say, White Wolf stuff, where, you know, you'd see a lot of stuff written by one or two or three people. uh, And then over the life of the game, uh, I think maybe because of the success of those earlier books, you see more and more people get hired on and, and those original founders Leave to a new industry or pass away or move into administrative roles or whatever. And it just starts to kind of, uh, be almost an upside down pyramid scheme where this. Yeah. Well, the, you,
2: you make a good point that there's just all different ways that it can get messed up. Absolutely. Yeah.
3: But I think it's, it's interesting because it's like the foundation gets laid by a handful of people and then it gets broader and broader, like an upside down pyramid, you know, where you get more and more people. And kind of more nitty-gritty detailed little books that are resting on this foundation of a small group.
2: Well, let's say, you know, the, the four of us are, are all pretty solid Shadowrun scholars. I think all four of us have read the majority of the books, right?
4: <laughs> wait, so, wait, wait.
2: Quick question. What's yeah. Shadowrun? Let's, that's what we're about to talk about right now. <laughs> what is, when it comes to Shadowrun as a setting, right, we're talking about the world, the sixth world. Um, let's let's talk about that. Let's answer that question. I'm going to throw this out to you first, Bull. What is Shadowrun as a setting?
4: That's a hard one, actually.
2: Really? It's uh, not just man meets magic and machine.
4: Well, that's the simple answer. <laughs> that's that's the really easy answer. But the question, you know, but then what does that mean?
2: Harry Dresden
0: meets the Matrix.
4: <laughs> it's it's one of those things that you can you can give a really simple answer, In my. My basic description of Shadowrun whenever I run demos is my first question to players if they haven't heard of Shadowrunner is, Shadowrunner, well, are you familiar with Tolkien, and are you familiar with Blade Runner? And then I say, well, <laughs> one day, Blade Runner was sitting at the bar and saw Tolkien sitting across from him. Got Tolkien all nickered up. Nine months later, Tolkien has a baby. That baby's named Shadowrun. <laughs> but when it comes down to it, there's so much to the game world, there's so many nuances anymore that... Describing Shadowrun is actually fairly difficult to a certain degree. But at the end of the day, you can always say Shadowrun is a dystopian future with magic where you're playing professional criminals doing bad things for money.
2: That's a good way to put it. Uh, Rusty, what would you say if uh, someone were to ask you, what is the setting of Shadowrun like?
3: I think the, the pithy bumper sticker answer is actually or was actually wildly accurate 25 years ago. To me, the biggest problem with it is now you've got 25 years of history, uh, and stuff to also go with. But yeah, and it's, it's hard to beat kind of the quick answer of kind of Gibson plus Tolkien or, or something like that. Uh, I guess for a more modern audience, the easy answer, you could certainly reference leverage for varying degrees of grittiness in a game,
0: which I have many, many, many yeah. times.
3: Um, but then you've also got, you know, it still kind of doesn't hit home the magic side, and potentially the the violent, gritty side,
2: or the well, cynical, the cynical social commentary.
3: Yeah, but I, I think so much of that's gonna vary from from session to session and from game master to game master. So I guess my answer, uh I'd just be like elves on motorcycles, that are elves jacked into motorcycles. How about that? Because it gives you, you know, magic is there, metahumanity is there. And cyber technology in a semi modern setting is there.
2: You know, and that is actually, uh, almost a, it's exactly what Jordan Wiseman was saying. Uh, I was reading the, uh, the Designers and Dragons 80s edition. And, uh, in, in Designers and Dragons 80s edition, he's quoted as saying that's kind of the genesis of, uh, Shadowrun was he wanted to make a game about Elves on motorcycles.
3: Really? Well, that would explain yeah. why he liked my fiction so much then. <laughs>
2: It's, it's, it's interesting that we're all having you know, a little bit of a hard time, you know, coming up with an easy way to say it. And I think part of that is because the IP in the world of Shadowrun is actually so strong that it's become its own kind of thing. It's, it's not something you compare to something else. You compare other things to it. Definitely. Yeah,
4: it's, it, well, the, the hard part about it is there's so much cool stuff to Shadowrun anymore that anytime you try boiling it down into one or two sentences, you're leaving so much other cool stuff out.
2: Let's ask, uh, let's ask Daryl. What do you think? What, what, what is the world of Shadowrun?
0: The year is 2063. Magic's a return to a world dominated by mega corporations. Go back to any of the game table Shadowrun episodes and you'll hear my little intro I wrote, where I was basically the most broad outline ever, where it was bringing up all these things we're talking about. The return of magic to the world. Mega corporations dominate everything in a oppressive, corrupt society while you're the independent Freedom fighters, but you're a little bit amoral mercenaries at the same time, trying to buck the system and live independently from under this crushing just weight of oppression. So I'm trying to find another word there. Yeah. It's not coming to me. Help, help. But I'm
2: being oppressed.
0: Exactly. That's what sh- that's what you are in Shadowrun. You're the little peasant. You're the little peasant slinging mud around trying to help, help. I'm being oppressed. Well, Damien Knight beats the crap out of you.
3: That's ridiculous. He has people for that. true but you'd think king arthur would have too honestly but but yeah that's that's
0: what it that's what it's about it's that cyberpunk struggle at the same time as the underdog story the noir story the one guy who's fighting against the corrupt cops and the gangs and the barons that are that are railroad barons and oil tycoons it's the noir story meets fantasy and gives that a little bit edge and even more mystery because even though In Shadowrun, magic is there and it is a studied science. MIT is now MIT and T, mathematics and, uh, technology and thaumaturgy. It's still a great unknown. There's stuff that happens all the time. The Rift in DC, for example,
3: no one still, we don't know what the hell that thing is. Whereas I guess kind of we do, but we don't. I guess to me, the, the problem with this, this question at all is that I guess my response is like, it can be that. You know, because that's to me part of the greatness of the setting. And I tend to do it backwards. And that when I'm I'm trying to help new people play the game, I start with what are you kind of thinking about being? Because you can you could run a Mad Max game. You know, there's corners of the setting that are just like that. You know, that are absolutely post-apocalypse. Um, you know, a, a campaign in. Chicago isn't going to be the same as a campaign in Seattle, which isn't going to be the same as the Berlin Wall spy story in Denver, which isn't going to be the same as young guns in the Texas-Mexico border. You know what I mean? It's it's one of those things where it's it's almost easier to find out, for me at least, what a player wants and then explain to them how that fits in than it is to kind of do it the other way around. I mean, you've got everything right. from ninjas to, to sorcerers to, you know, and everything in between.
2: Well, let's, uh, let's ask this question then. Let's maybe refine it a little bit. We've, we've talked a little bit like about the basic overview. But if I, if you were going to say, I don't know, pick a handful of highlights of what, you know, we talked about those tent pole things, right? That hold up the IP. If you were going to pick a few of those highlights to tell people about, What would the first one be, Bull? Bug City. In
4: a heartbeat. For those that aren't familiar with it, Bug City was an event in Shadowrun where, for unknown reasons, very alien, very strange spirits that had various insect-like qualities um, and tended to mirror various insects from the real world. So you had ants, you had wasps, you had cockroaches etc., etc., invaded the city of Chicago. And they actually tie back into what we were talking about with the you know, United Brotherhood, because that was their first foray into this world. One of their first forays into the world of Shad Run, But with Chicago, they actually tried, like, a massive invasion and were sort of semi-almost a little bit stopped by Ares and the, you know, and the uh, UCAS military.
2: Nuclear weapon.
4: Who set off a nuclear bomb.
0: At, uh, coincidentally enough, the intersection they set the bomb off was fast as old headquarters. Yes,
4: It was, the uh, the building that they set it off in. You could see from the developer's, uh, office window. It was right across the corner from the building. Surmac Avenue.
2: I would actually pick, um, <clears throat> the Awakening as probably the, the th- first thing I would tell someone about is, hey, there's magic. There's this thing called the Awakening where, you know, magic came back. <laughs> uh, people turned into elves and orcs and, things like that, and now we have vampires and ghouls running around as well. It's that first thing that takes it from just being a cyberpunk game and turns it into the special sort of snowflake that Shatteron is, is uh, is because of this return of magic. And it kind of, almost everything else kind of flows from there, right? I mean, very true, which includes Bug That's- City, uh, you know, obviously, well, Big yeah. City.
4: I, w- I was thinking, I was thinking somebody that knew a little bit about Shatteron already. Yeah. If they didn't know anything about Shatteron, yeah, you've got to start at the beginning. You got to start with the Awakening and move on from there.
2: Well, what about you, uh, Rusty? What would you pick if you could just pick uh, one, you know, tent pole thing to talk about?
3: Well, if, if we're going back from kind of pre 2050, like if, if that's all on the table, uh, instead of me pulling a bull and, and trying to just name a campaign, because that's kind <laughs> of what I was leaning towards initially itself, um, I would actually mention like the first Matrix crash, uh, since you had already mentioned the Awakening because to me, one of the important things to hit home to people is that Shadowrun computers are not real-world computers. Uh, and do not expect them to work like real-world computers. Don't expect anything but the basics of upload and download and turn on and turn off to be the same as how real-world electronics work. Um, so I would just kind of hit home the fact that what we know of as the Internet is not exactly the Matrix and this, you know, kind of underlying tech level that they've got there. So I'd mention, you know, the big Matrix crashes, toss in a couple of the AIs, and and definitely hit home that Deckers are in another place. They are, you know, either dealing with technology through augmented reality, which we're getting frighteningly close to nowadays, but, you know, when they're frightening me, I'm looking forward to it. I
0: want a damn Google glass. Yeah, well,
3: I guess you just trust companies more than I do then. Uh, but no, it's, it's, uh, you know, AR is easy for people to wrap their head around, but I would want to remind people that, you know, when you go in full virtual reality and you're describing it all, it's like, you've got to look at it. The way we thought computers were going to work in the eighties, you know, and, and pretend it's all computer generated and was totally awesome at the time. Don't think <laughs> about actual computers. Uh, you know, that's one of the biggest hurdles I've got, but it might be because my local group is mostly computer programmers. So, hmm. you know, every now and then they want to drop some real world knowledge. And I'm like, no, it just doesn't work like that. You know, <laughs> you've, uh,
2: <laughs> you just got to touch you, Daryl. What would, you, what would you pick, Daryl, if you had... I to just pick. want
0: to build off one thing he said with it. Don't play with network... No, it's actually kind of fun because I had a guy who's a network admin for his day job in one of my third edition games, and he invented a list of programs and commands in the old security sheath method of hacking or decking uh, that was basically he made a rootkit in Shadowrun. <laughs> It was an injection where it attacked and got admin account. And then every time the admin account, it would keep creating a second admin account to re-up this, the first admin account. And it was really pretty brilliant the way he scammed the rules to make a real life exploit in the game. So that was a lot of fun. But for me, uh, gonna go back a ways and talk about where the, what I think the Shadowrun timeline splits from our timeline, the Shiawase decision.
2: Oh, yeah. The birth of the mega corporation.
0: These were actually two different Supreme Court decisions in the game world that happened in 2000 and 2001 that basically gave corporations the right to extraterritoriality, which means their their laws are the only ones that apply on their grounds, and gave them the right to have standing armies to protect themselves and their property. You can see why this one to be on my mind recently with some of our political things. I'm not going to get into the actual <laughs> real-world politics too much, but all I'm going to say is Citizens United and leave it at that.
2: Yeah, in in Shadowrun, corporations are not just people. They're better than you. (laughs) They're not just people. They're they're
0: countries. They're their own nation states. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You walk in, you walk into the local uh, stuffer shack. You are no longer in Seattle. You are on As Technology property,
2: which is a really scary thought. You know, if there's there's a lot of stuffer shacks out there. (laughs) Mm Hmm. Okay, but that that's a really good point as well, is you know, the idea that um you know megacorporations being one of the biggest big movers and shakers in the Shadowrun uh, world. I mean you honestly can't even discuss Shadowrun without getting into the mega corporations as entities, as you know, players in that worldwide game. Now what about you, Ross? Well, if I had to pick one, I mean I already said the awakening.
0: Uh, oh, oh that's right. <laughs>
2: Something that's a little interesting, I'm going to take a quick uh, tangent here. Something that's a little interesting is actually a part of Shadowrun that has kind of atrophied. And it's it started off as a very strong part of the setting, but it has over time become less and less important. And at this point in Shadowrun is kind of an appendage that most people will go, oh, oh yeah, there's also that thing. I am, of course, talking about the idea that the Native American nations are a really big deal. In the, uh, first and second editions of Shadowrun, I would say maybe up to even early third edition, Native American nations and the idea that the, that the Native Americans had really, you know, resurgenced themselves into uh, a prominent role, uh, was a really big deal. They had the, you know, they, they start off with the, what was called the great ghost dance, which is where they proved that magic was back in a big way and it was a, it basically shattered America (laughs) into a bunch of different little, uh, Nation states yep. and things of that nature. Um, That's
0: what led directly to the Treaty of Denver. Exactly.
2: The Treaty of Denver, where the Native American nations, you know, said, oh, well, we are now, we, we are now, you know, on, on par with big countries. But I, I at least to me, and, and you guys can jump in here and say, you know, say you're, I'm completely wrong if you want. But at least to me, it has seemed that over the years, that particular aspect of Shadowrun has just gotten less and less important.
3: I, I agree that it, to an extent it has. It's kind of been, move to a back burner. I think it's mostly out of a desire to not be so horrendously offensive about it. Let's be honest. I mean, no matter how well intentioned it may have been, there was a lot of, you know, kind of early nineties hipster Native Americans were pure and Europeans aren't pandering to some of those stereotypes that may have been meant as complimentary. Uh, but in retrospect, you know, every Native American is a magical brave, uh, except for the ones that are actual shaman. And, you know, I believe
0: um I believe uh, TV Trumps calls that the noble savage,
3: yes. uh, as do many historians. Um, and I think it's <laughs> yeah, and the, the opening lecture. Well, we know yeah, where our educations the, come the from. The opening Rusty lecture actually my, is a historian. Yes, I the, know the first lecture of my United States history course, uh, because, of course, we cover all of pre-Columbian history and Columbus's arrival in one chapter. But the opening lecture is actually called Native Americans Are Not Magical Woodland Creatures. That's that's <laughs> the title of my first lecture, uh, where I try to hit home that, you know, they didn't paint with all the colors of the wind. They manipulated their environment like people, because hey guess what? They were people. So they have people thumbs and they use people tools and they built people things and, you know, but there's a lot of, of that in the nineties and not just Shadowrun. And if you read some old world of darkness stuff, um, you know, it's got some stuff that's kind of cringe worthy now in a lot of the same way,
4: especially some of the, especially some of the werewolf stuff.
3: Yeah, definitely. Where then it was also, you know, kind of pandering to sort of a neo pagan Barnes and Noble self-help aisle crowd, uh, in that all of that was suddenly real and also awesome while being heavily stereotyped by you know not being looked at very deeply and the exact same way as is a lot of the other new age stuff and the native american spiritualism and you know so i i think i mean i i completely agree it's been kind of drawn away from Uh, i think partially it's because the nan countries maybe it's not
2: such a bad thing
3: yeah i mean i think it's partially nan countries are kind of the flyover states um you know people tend to focus on seattle a lot and and the nan countries are what you get through to go to like the denver box set or you know whatever or to make your way to chicago bug city uh but i think a lot of it has been kind of a self-conscious decision to to try and kind of pull away from those stereotypes a little bit
2: you know you, you really make some great points there rusty and i'm glad we asked you on the show to talk about this tonight because i had never actually made that connection between uh uh, Werewolf and uh, Shatter before in the uh, treatment of uh, Native Americans, but that's a really excellent point, and um, certainly something to think about uh, for people who you know gamed during the '90s and, and read all those books and things of that nature. Like Ross, Well, you were going to say something about this too. I'm sorry, uh, what was? Oh, it?
4: Sorry. Uh, Well, part of it was going to be the the desire not to be racist bastards. That was one of the reasons why I think a lot of like Shatterun pulled back from that a little bit. Part of it, I think also was that as a lot of the Native American nations were set up, they're not all that good for Shadowrun. Either. One of the reasons why Seattle has remained the such a focus for Shadowrun as far as storyline and plot and a set and a central setting location, is because it brought together so many different elements in one location. You had it being this little tiny border nation basically. Surrounded by effectively enemies, because you've got various nan territories, and you've got um, Elven nation of the south there. Whoop, whoop. It's a port city. <laughs> it's a Shout port out city. To my you had you had all ten of the mega corporations present. They had set up the barons area of Seattle. You had the, this this weird orc underground section to it that gave a whole other uh, level to the city. So you just had so many different aspects coming together that made it the ideal setting because you could do almost anything in that one little location. Whereas when you get out to the Nan areas, you've got a lot of wide open territory, a lot less city, very homogenized, because unfortunately they did do that thing where it's like, oh, well, we're the noble, we're the noble Indians and nobody else is allowed to live here. Well, when you do that, it really cuts out a lot of your storytelling potential. You still have potential to tell stories, but only certain types of stories. It's one of the reasons why it took 20 years almost for Shadowrun to finally do anything with Japan. Because Japan had been written as this very conservative, very...
2: Monolithic.
4: Uh, well, well, very monolithic, but also very uh, fearful of magic, very fearful of um, the, the various races. Very racist. Very fearful of outsiders and non-Japanese and it was just so totally corporate controlled that shadow running within Japan was almost impossible for any any logical reason and i'm diverging a little bit i, I apologize i'm kind of going all over the map here but to go
3: back
4: to but to go back to the point that i think that was also one of the reasons why we went away from the native americans stuff for a long time was that it was really hard to figure out what to do with all of because your your storytelling potential was so limited, and we still do stuff every now and then. There's been a handful of source books um, the last last five or six years. There's been a handful of source books that have touched on various areas of, North, of uh, the Native American stuff, especially with us messing around with Denver. Um, I know Las Vegas got a
0: write up not too long ago. Ooh, that's one I've been waiting on for a long time.
2: Yeah, well, honestly, I, I, I'm not going to say it's a weakness. I think I think actually Shadowrun by playing to its strengths and focusing on the bits that everyone is really interested in, you know, it's just a natural outgrowth of that because yeah. as you say, people were just not really that interested in it in the first place. And yeah. as Rusty very wisely pointed out, uh, there's probably a really good reason from a social consciousness standpoint to uh, not focus too heavily on that either.
0: It might also have something to do with the fact that in the late eighties, there was a little bit more of a movement at the time politically for more right there was a lot more attention paid to the native american reservations and uh i think it was about i think that was about the time that i think it's the lakota tribe was making uh waves that they were wanting to declare independence yeah the, probably was around then yeah. that was when they were first started doing it and that whole thing kind of fell off the political landscape before about before the mid-90s came around so i
3: just wanted to point out that and this stuff is all still there it hasn't been retconned away uh, you'll still often see NPCs with a Native American theme. I mean, one of our kind of SR5 iconics, Koi Dog, uh, is, is originally from tribe near Seattle. She's not from the city of Seattle, or I guess kind of the country of Seattle, the, as it fell into place. But, you know, so it's, it's definitely still there. You'll still often see it in the artwork. Uh, there's several gangs that are very heavily themed towards Native Americanism and, uh, you know, stuff That's like right. that.
1: That's
2: right. If you, uh, if you look at the up-and-coming miniature game Gangers, you will, of course, hear about the First Nations gang, and Koi Dog will also be featured in that. That was actually
4: something when we were uh, working on 5th Edition. Um, we had a couple of big meetings up in uh, Seattle with the bigwigs. One of the things we did was we met with the art director, Brent uh, Evans. Talking about how we were going to present Shadowrun in 5th Edition was a big topic for how, for how the art was going to go. And one of the things that Brent and several of us mentioned well, that we had missed because it had been worked out of the artwork for quite a while was some of the Native American influences. Because, as Rusty says, that it, despite us kind of pulling back from it, the fact of the matter is it's still there. So you would still miss somewhat sometimes have on like fashion and whatever you will have the influences of these these tribal nations that are around, right? Especially around Seattle.
3: Yeah, and I can think of several. And that made it into SR five. So well, exactly. Yeah. Well,
4: that was that was the and that was the point was that was something that that Brent really wanted to bring back is to to put some of that back in here and there. And in fact, the the short story that I wrote for SR five, Rooftops and Rainbows, I think it was called uh, the intro story for the Matrix fiction, uh, Matrix section. One of the things I wanted to bring to to put a focus back on because they hadn't been mentioned in years and years and years was the urban tribes which was the idea of people who were displaced and had some Native American blood or roots but didn't have a tribe necessarily to go to or didn't want to leave the city to go join one of the nations. And so you ended up with these mixed tribes that formed basically a gang-slash-urban tribe within the cities. And so there's a character in there. The main character from my little short story is one of the urban tribes, so she talks a real well briefly about that.
2: Well, let's touch on briefly upon one other thing that has, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your particular outlook on it, um, has also been, uh, removed from Shadowrun, but was at one time, uh, part of what Shadowrun was all about. And that, of course, is its connection to another game, a game called Earth Dawn.
0: Ah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, I tell, this is one thing I, one, this is a business related thing that I never understood why Shadowrun and Battletech's IP seem to have gotten bundled together and not Shadowrun and Earthdawns. I mean, I know Battletech and Shadowrun... Wait, what? Battletech and Earthdawns... When they got... No, their IP. Who owns the rights to them, not the worlds themselves?
4: uh, This is simple. It had everything to do with Jordan Wiseman. It had nothing to do with how they were bundled and sold because uh, Jordan never really worked on Earthdawn. Jordan was one of the original creators of Battletech and Jordan was one of the original creators of Shadowrun. So, by the time FASA closed, he had started up WizKids.
2: Well, if we, if we wanted to talk about all the things Jordan Wiseman invented, we would be here for a while. Because that is dude true. is crazy this awesome. This is true.
4: But the, <laughs> the short, the short form of it is that when FASA closed, Jordan decided to try to keep the IPs alive by buying them from, well, from his dad. Mort. Uh, Mort. Thank you. And from, uh, there was another partner that was involved in the company that,
2: uh. Ross Babcock.
4: Well, there was Ross, there was a third partner that was never, uh, that was a silent partner. Okay. And I don't, I don't know who he was. An immortal elf, but, no um, doubt. Probably. It was Harlequin. His fucking elf. Anyways, uh, sorry, can I, can I, can I say that? Yeah. Okay.
0: No, you cannot insult Harlequin. You can say fuck all you want, you just can't insult Harlequin. Uh, well,
4: well, I'm leaving then. He is the last <laughs> night of the crying spire. So, yeah, well, he's crying for a reason. Because <laughs> he's a big baby. No, um, <laughs> Anyways, it, it largely had to do with the fact that Jordan saw potential and saw sales potential in Battletech and Shadowrun and didn't really see them in Earth and he didn't have the same connection to Earth that he had to the other two. At least that's my understanding.
0: And uh, from a business point of view, it does make sense, but from a fiction standpoint, was, uh, just as a fan,
2: please put them back together. Well, they can't. Um, I know, I know. It's well, currently know. owned by an entirely different company. So. It is. I know. Well, and to be fair technically speaking the fourth world is still there well yeah it's i mean let's just be really clear for the listeners I mean, we talked about this before on the episodes we've done on shadowrun but uh, the very very brief version of it is there is a game called Earthdawn it is set in the same world as shadowrun just generations before and before technology and in a thing in a place called the the fourth world where shadowrun is the sixth world and the world we currently are living in and know as our own is the fifth for, for the most part. And then uh, there were characters in Earthdawn that had been dormant or not well-known in the Fifth World that were then again seen again in Shadowrun. So you could talk to Dunkelzon in Shadowrun, and he's the, he's also Mountain Shadow in Earthdawn. So there was a lot of, of, of themes and tropes and characters and things that were linked between those two settings. Uh, but unfortunately, due to the fact that another company now owns Earthdawn, uh this is no longer true and has not been true i think for um probably some oh, time 10 or 15 yeah. years i think
4: pretty much since Fast closed down
2: yeah so and again
3: it's nothing it's it hasn't been retconned away you know we're still allowed to talk about it you know if it comes up in game or whatever but it does make it awkward to try and introduce new connections uh or to right. emphasize the existing ones you know it hasn't been undone or anything like that it's just It's a little weird to try and coordinate it, Uh, you know. uh.
2: As a guy who loves playing Pixie Shadowrunners, I am all for that connection (laughs) just because without it, there would not be any windlings, uh, Uh, I mean Pixies, uh, in
0: Shadowrun. I do have some bad news that I was talking to some of the people at at Gen Con. I was talking to some of the people at uh, FASA Games and apparently they are working on a new sixth world to go with their fourth uh-huh. edition of Shadowrun that is going to be kind of a steampunky World War II aces kind of thing.
4: Yeah, I know. I, I remember they were talking about something along those lines a little while back.
0: That's the bad news. The good news is they're also working on a game set in the second world, which was the Age of Dragons.
2: Well, good luck to those guys, but let's get back to talking about Shadowrun. <laughs> yeah. um, yes. Why don't we take a quick break, and we will come back and talk about some more stuff.
0: Are you looking for a new game to play? Drive Through RPG is the internet's largest source of role playing games. Enjoy our game table episodes with Shadowrun, Dungeons and Dragons, or Mutants and Masterminds. And you want to join in, or is World of Darkness, BattleTech, or Fate more your thing? Or maybe you just want to check out games from our guests like The Cursed and Tar, The Savage Worlds settings. Just go to GamersTavern.org slash RPG, and you can have a new game to play in minutes. And they also have the largest selection of free games, source books, and starter sets anywhere in the world. Go to GamersTavern.org slash RPG and support the show with every purchase.
2: And we're back with episode 44 of the Gamers Tavern podcast. We're talking to Rusty Zimmerman and Bull of the Ork Decker, Steve Rakovich, about the Sixth World, which is the Shadowrun setting. And we had just kind of gotten done talking about some of the basics and some of the kind of weirder or less traveled paths that Shadowrun's kind of, you know, gotten away from, but we we should like spend a little time, I think, talking about the, the things that make Shadowrun awesome. And a lot of that has to do with the timeline. It's basically got like a meta plot that continues to advance from year to year.
0: Shadowrun is almost consistently, aside from a few bumps and hiccups here and there when they had to jump forward and then a slide back in their production schedule during FanPro well, for 4th Edition, but it's pretty much consistently 60 and one-half years in the future.
2: The, as we've said before, talking about Shadowrun, there's been a number of... Um, issues that have cropped up due to the fact that it's changed hands to different companies and different developers and, and things of that nature. So yes. But in the in the long term it has had a fairly consistently advancing timeline, um, which has included some really great uh some really great and memorable moments, and maybe a few that weren't so memorable. <laughs> uh, but let's let's talk about the ones that we think are, are probably the best and most impactful as far as defining the setting.
0: I gotta scream this one out. Universal Brotherhood! (laughs) Oh my god. I love the bug plot. Yeah, that that was one of my favorites. Uh, we've talked about it a lot already when we're talking about Universal Brotherhood, Missing Blood, the Kermac Blast, and Chicago, Bug City, but
2: oh my god, it's so. Uh huh. Once again, thank you, Nigel Finley. Yes. There's a reason why, uh, the
4: current season of missions is in, uh, Chicago. Although strangely enough, it's been, it's been completely bug free so far.
0: I hear some ominous tones behind so far.
4: Would I do that?
2: <laughs> Rusty, why don't you hit us with what you think is a very special moment from Shadowrun History that helps define the setting?
3: I guess I'm going to stick with our theme of kind of big campaigns. Uh, and since I mentioned an early Matrix crash as a watershed moment, I'm going to go with the whole Renraku Arcology shutdown. Nice. Arcologies in Shadowrun uh, are basically self-sustained cities slash corporate housing slash shopping malls slash corporate offices, uh, all piled into a giant pyramid, basically, that, that takes up city block after city block after city block. Renraku, who was at the time a, a premier electronics and technology and, and software company, uh, had an AI that went rogue, uh, and it basically, Dears. yes, uh, and he, 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 took over this Renraku arcology with thousands upon thousands of people living in it or just visiting for the day to go shopping or working in it at the time. Men, women, and children, uh, all get locked inside. Uh, there's this really creepy groups of, of the servants of this AI that were color coded by their cyber optics, which was just awesome mental imagery uh, and, you know, kind of classic horror movie fashion. They lived and worked for this AI doing these, these terrible inhuman experiments, trying to put cyberware where cyberware doesn't go and crafting these really exotic drones that no one had ever seen before. And it was just really fantastic.
0: It's the Tomb of Horrors if designed by Jigsaw from Saw.
3: <laughs> it
4: really was. One of one of the original uh, concepts that Mike Mulvahill described when, when this was in the early stages of planning was that they were interested in trying to do a, a cool dungeon crawl for yeah. Shadowrun.
2: Well, Mulvihill, of course, has been mentioned uh, earlier when we were talking about the great creators uh, who kept the line very consistent over the years. And uh, if you look at the number of books that, that Mulvihill worked on as the line developer, you'll see there's again that very strong continuity that very strong connection that makes the world feel like it comes alive and so what part of rusty is saying is he's saying that the the Renroc arcology shutdown was a was a big deal and part of that was because it was reflected as a big deal in the other products of its time
3: oh yeah uh, and it, it it also marked a, a change in how artificial intelligence Research was treated and what AIs couldn't, couldn't do. Uh, and answers just about anything in the matrix. But yeah, it was definitely a cool one. And it's, it's still got ripples today. There was a series of follow up adventures, brain scan, uh, where basically runners get hired to go and, and, and basically try to shut down the rogue AI and liberate the arcology. Uh, and then the arcology was basically a demilitarized zone and has been for I mean, a decade or so now with the UCAS, which is basically the U.S. Uh, military, kind of going in and, and clearing it out level by level uh, and still finding drones. Uh, and then there are these echoes of rogue AIs with people that have unique abilities to interface with technology without the technology everyone else needs.
2: Yeah, so this was tied into the emergence of the technomancers.
3: Right, the the initially the otaku and now technomancers. Um and I I was thinking about that recently. I don't know who else watched a bunch of football this weekend, but there there's this commercial with the kid that can speak to technology where it's just this little boy growing up and he can turn stuff on and off. I don't even remember what company it's for but I saw it and I just kept going oh it's a freaky little otaku kid cuz he's just <laughs> he just says on oh, in the freaky robot voice and he's able to turn stuff on and off and and that's kind of what it reminded me of that's how important a I mean Shadowrun has been to my life and my wife's but you know cuz she immediately thought the same thing but B you know how much of a kind of watershed moment those campaigns were to me at least, in Shadowrun. I didn't ever get blindsided by the Universal Brotherhood um, the way a lot of people did. I, I ran them instead of re- of playing through them. But I was a spectator slash participant in the Arcology shutdown and especially in Brain Scan instead of being the GM that has the whole book. Um, so those were my kind of gut punches, was dealing with that rogue AI and stuff.
0: Yeah, Always stay home Christmas week, pretty much, in the the sixth world. that's when all the bad stuff seems to happen.
2: (laughs) Uh, Bull, what about you? If you had to pick a a single moment of history. There's a lot of good ones. But I think my
4: favorite, probably probably a really important one, and one that's had so much impact on everything that followed, has to be Dunkelzahn's election and death.
2: Oh, Yeah. Yep. Bingo! Yeah, big time. I I love the way that was handled. Again, another um, Mike Mulville. <laughs> and of yeah, course, that was that
4: was largely Mike and Steve.
2: Yeah, crafted crafted through the pen of the very talented and uh, uh, very knowledgeable game designer Steve Kenson. We've uh, had him on the show before. Good guy. And oh,
4: Steve's um, Steve's awesome.
2: He is. Well, here's the thing: is like this is you know, we've just been talking about again these these very consistent you know, bits of Shadowrun that are just like, yeah, this is what it is to be in Shadowrun. And I, I would have to say you're absolutely correct. That uh, Go ahead, at least talk about it, because I, I'm i so excited right now. I don't want to know That's if right. I can. The Book of Plot Hooks.
0: Well, the basics
4: for anybody out there who may not have read about it or, or experienced it was that in 2057, um, well, prior to 2057, the uh, president of the UCAS, who I can't remember his name off the top of my head, It was determined that he was elected through voter fraud. So he was booted out of office and a special election was held. And through various means and methods, one of a number of candidates who ran for office was the great dragon Dunkelzon. It was kind of cool because there was actually a whole campaign leading up to this, uh, a number of adventures involving the various candidates. A special
2: event at Gen Con.
4: Yeah, players could send in uh, cards that the books came with to vote for who they wanted for president. And Dunkle's on winning, I'm sure, was absolutely no shock to anybody. But I'm sure he won by an absolute landslide. I don't believe there was any voter fraud involved in Dunkle's on getting elected on Foss's part.
0: Oh, damn! I wanted
2: Blackhaven to win too. <laughs> I, I
4: was, I was, I uh, was supporting General Yates and, and and
2: Penchick myself. So a dragon was president of the United Canadian American States. Just let yes. that run through your mind a little bit, yes. there, listeners. Dragon
4: was president for about a for about day. an hour. Yes. And at his inaugural, at his inauguration, his limo blew up, and he was killed. So he was president, and then he died. And this left all kinds of ramifications. Uh, there was an astral rift left on the spa- spot where he died, and all kinds of weird ass spirits. And another dragon popped out of the <laughs> rift. And then, even more surprising to everybody else, he left a will that was just basically as somebody mentioned just a minute ago, the big book of Plot Hawks. Oh, yeah. And so many adventures and so many stories and so much that happened in Shadowrun for the next... Honestly, we're still dealing with Fallout yeah. that well. Yeah. To this day.
2: It's, it's awesome. It's absolutely awesome. If you ask me to pick a particular point in history, um, I would have to say, you know, again, going back to the, the fanboy I am for everything Nigel Finley ever touched, um, I would say it's that... First exposure, we got to the idea that there are Immortal Elves, and they have been sort of managing things over time, and that the emergence of places like Shershingeyer, you know, there's, there's just an awful lot of things going on, including Harlequin and all of the connections back to Earthdon, that are part of what the Immortal Elves have been trying to accomplish. There yeah. is no such thing as the Immortal Elf conspiracy, because that's exactly what they want you to think. Of course. <laughs> There is no,
0: if you read the novels there is no such thing as the immortal elf conspiracy because you can't get those fuckers to agree on oh, anything. Oh no.
4: When you <laughs> yeah. when you've been alive for that long, you have an awful lot of uh grudges. A, a, conspira- built up.
3: a conspiracy implies conspirators and they don't they don't get along well enough for that.
4: There's a whole lot of immortal elven conspiracies. They're all conspiracies of one, but there's a lot of them.
2: Maybe one other thing we should talk about here is uh the fact that shadowrun was incredibly popular overseas there was a whole group of guys i want to say um mostly focused in germany yeah uh, who were just gaga over shadowrun yes and they kind of went and did a lot of their i mean i mean there's really kind of if you think about it there's kind of like shadowrun for everybody else and then shadowrun for europe because those guys kind of went and did their own thing for many years and um honestly my first exposure to a lot of that was in Dragonfall, the uh, expansion for Shadowrun Returns, because I hadn't really, you know, known what was going on over in Berlin or going on in, uh, you know, that part of the world. And it was, it was a really cool, you know, kind of window into that almost separate world that they had kind of built for themselves over there.
4: Yeah. Uh, Germany has, has a big Shadowrun following. Europe in general does, but Germany's where it's largely focused. Actually, to be honest, your first exposure to the German stuff probably was the Germany source book. Well, yes. Well, if, if you read that.
2: I don't think I did, actually.
4: <laughs> okay. That was actually written by the uh, the German licensee back in the FASA days, uh, which was, coincidentally enough, Fantasy Productions Fan Pro. They actually had the license to translate books, but they also created a, a handful of original books for their locations. But they weren't the only ones. There was a French, There was. There's been two or three different French uh, source books that have been written over the years. There was a Poland source book that was written by a Polish licensee. There was a Tokyo source book, and actually, shadow. Uh, there was a set of foreshadow on manga done by a Japanese licensee.
2: Wow, I did not know about the manga. Uh, yes.
4: though, I, I've never been able to read them because I've, I've never found. I've never seen them translated. Uh, but I flipped through them and they are crazy looking
3: and the, the trolls because they're that I was gonna say trolls look awesome in, in the manga yeah. uh, it's ridiculous how cool they look
4: it's sweet I'll have to check that out it's it's yeah because they're that they very much use the that that 80s crazy anime manga style for it
3: hmm. but
4: the the Japanese source book basically just took the base concept of Shadowrun and apparently went in a way weird direction with it
3: that's not Japanese it was at completely all completely
4: not completely doesn't fit with any of the normal canon stuff, but from from what I've heard, unfortunately, I've never seen much of the way of it translated, and its I don't think it had a very large print run, and it's been out of print for decades now.
2: You know, we talked about like some of the bits that we think are the most uh, impactful for the timeline. And I
0: think I know the segue you're going to make, and I may be able to make it for you. One of the ones, since everyone stole all the good ones, uh, one of the ones that I think was most impactful is one of the most controversial to a lot of people. Uh, was actually Year of the Comet. Well, I was,
2: yeah, I was, I was just about to ask if we could name some, and I don't want to dwell on this too much, but if we could talk about some elements of Shadowrun history that did not work so well as and defining the setting. <laughs> I liked Year of the Comet. Yeah, there's, I, a reason, I, 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 there's a very good reason why very few people ever, ever even talk about that book. I, 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 I love Year of the Comet, but I
4: also worked on it, and I'm a little biased by that, so. <laughs> I'm not a very good judge of that one, apparently.
2: I think it's fair to say Year of the Comet is considered, you know, one of those that is kind of the, the and also this happened.
4: Yeah. Year of the Com- <laughs> well, Year of the Comet suffered a little bit because Year of the Comet was a book that was about 75% written under FASA, and then FASA went under. And it was the first book that the FanPro guys published when they picked it up. Honestly, I think it suffered a little bit. Because it was a transition book. And so you had a bunch of new people come in to finish it. And things well, were a little.
2: There, there's that. And then there's also the some of the tonal shifts that were made. I mean, yeah. Prior to Year of the Common, the idea of metahumans were, okay, it's D&D, you know, plus cyberpunk. And people were like, oh, you know, they'd had some time to get used to that. And the idea now that I have elves and trolls running out of cyberware, okay, that's totally fine and cool. Year of the Common comes out and says, guess what? It's also cat girls and blue dudes with four arms,
4: yeah, and Power
2: Rangers. And people were like, "You know, I don't think I, yeah." Let's just, let's just, um, let's move on. <laughs> yeah,
4: there's some interesting concepts with the changelings, but definitely not one of the st-
2: blue dudes with four arms. And I will stop saying anything about you're the comet now.
4: To be fair, you could do that anyway. You just have cyber arms and some blue skin tint, and you're good to go
0: There is one chapter, I'm trying to find it In my copy of the book But there is one chapter that No matter what you think of the book itself It's probably one of The best written things Foreshadowing since probably cyber technology The one little piece, and that's the introduction of the Sheetam Oh, yeah In the book, it is written like Romero style zombie movies and its tension and how it plays out. It is so great. And I'll, for, I'll forgive four, four-armed blue dudes to have that chapter of the book.
3: See, my thing with, with Surge, which is what these mutations are called, for those who aren't familiar, is, and, and Changelings, which are the people who are mutated in that way, is it's, it's really completely optional. Um, and I think you'll notice it hasn't really come up a whole lot since then. Uh, for, that's kind of
2: my point yeah I mean, for a while
3: <laughs> changelings were kind of the new meta-humanity, right they were the new people to be racist against and stuff like that but I think from just a game design perspective there's so much you can do with them and it gets so weird so fast that it's just kind of been ignored not so much because it's been quietly swept under the rug but because it's like okay if if we add this whole nother axis of weird special abilities people can have, uh, and, and weird looks that, that people have and all that. It just kind of, it, it adds a whole different layer of, of complexity to writing an NPC and a whole different layer of munchkinism that people can use if they just happen to be the changeling mutation that gets a plus one to their favorite stat. And, you know, it just kind of, it adds kind of an unnecessary layer of complexity, I think.
4: I I will note, though, that changelings did allow me to bring a scrang into Shadowrun. Yep. So, some good came of it, in my opinion. Because Simon Andrews is one of my favorite NPCs to play
2: with. Is there any other uh, particular elements of Shadowrun history that maybe didn't work quite so well? It's, i uh, speaking just for myself. It's kind of a tough
3: one to answer because I, I still work for the company. Uh, you know, so it's, <laughs> <laughs> there, there are right, things right. that can be said in a friendly conversation.
2: Right. That can't be said. I understand. Well, I understand. and it's
3: not just that. It's that also, you know, part of the NDA. Uh, is that we're not supposed to discuss backstage conversations. So I can't even You are say, such a
4: corporate shill, I tell you.
3: Hey, not all of us are official part time employees, pal. Freelancer's gonna yes, freelance. Hey I guess.
4: hey, if there was if there was anything bad about Shadowrun, I'd say it. But there's nothing. Not at all. The company's <laughs> awesome. Everything's great. Yes. We're all fine here. Thanks. How are you?
3: And, <laughs> but no, it's it's just what I'm saying, it's kind of awkward to to pick at but it's the gamer reflex to pick at the things you don't like. Um And I'll come out and just say that there's... um And this isn't in any way a secret or, or anything that fans of Shadowrun probably haven't noticed. um, But going back to that idea where you get this sense of solidarity and continuity when you have a low number of writers that are all able to kind of brainstorm and work on the same wavelength, I think the larger a freelance pool gets... And the more disconnected they get, the, the more complications and communication errors arise in, in running a company. And I think most of the problems I've got when I look at a book and I can go, Oh, I hated that chapter or, Oh, this one was ma- terrible. And, Oh, I, I hate this gun or, or whatever. I think it comes to that sort of consistency and continuity issue. That arises from any game that starts to get kind of written by committee. So,
2: well, let's, um, I'm, I'm going to throw out one concrete example of maybe something that didn't work so well. And, and I, we will totally understand if you guys just say you can't say anything about it. But there is a slightly more recent event in Shattered History that probably, uh, I would say, <clears throat> hasn't worked quite as well as hoped. And that would be the Astlan Amazonia War.
4: Oh, for more.
2: No, 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 it's from I, war. You have to add the exclamation point. Oh, okay. <laughs> what, huh? What is it good for?
4: Absolutely nothing. So
2: yeah. <laughs> not, not a whole lot.
4: Um, yeah, that was a book that just kind of fell a little flat.
2: Well, I'm not, let's, uh, let's, you know, let's try and not talk about the product so much as the, the historical event.
4: Well, I think the problem is, it's a tough one. I think one of the problems is that certain types of books don't sell and don't work as well as they may have used to. One thing you'll notice is that there are very, very few just flat out source books anymore. Or like location books. Things like the stuff that Nigel Finley worked on, especially the Cal Free State, the, um, Atslan source book, stuff like that. One of the reasons why is that they just don't sell anymore. For for whatever reason the gamer the game culture has changed to the point where at best only the game master usually buys a lot of these books so the sales numbers on them tend to be much lower than on something that all players can use in an effort to make the products have a broader appeal you end up with books that are doing multiple trying to trying to serve multiple masters they're books that are trying to put in plot they're trying to put in adventure hooks but they're also trying to add in new gear new locations Etc., so that there's a lot of different functionality that the book can serve. And unfortunately, every time you add in something like that, it adds an extra layer of complication to the book or complexity to the book and gives it another level that it can possibly fall flat on.
2: Again, I I think we should really just, you know, focus on like what it means in the setting. Because we could talk about Bug City and what it means in the setting. We could talk about. We can talk about universal brotherhood and what it means in the setting. When we talk about the war in, in Azulam and in Amazonia, what we kind of boiled down to is some carnivorous the, trees forming a border between two warring nations that, yeah, it gets really yeah, difficult to understand very quickly.
3: What it means in the, <laughs> what it means in the setting is very little. Uh, and that's part of the problem to it but i would argue because of how well received the book has been i think you could also say that that might be a saving grace to it uh is that <laughs> unless you are in the amazon it really doesn't matter and, and i think it, in the end that might kind of be the the best thing about it um is that well that's with-
2: also kind of an indictment of it too i mean that's one of the things we've been talking about like the cool things in the timeline and bits that that do matter i mean renreku ecology you said you know ripples all the way out to other things and, you know, Bug City and Dunkles on Will. There's a lot of really thing, there's a lot of really great things in Shadowrun's history that do keep coming back. And we keep talking about, we keep, you know, being relevant. And I'm, all I wanted to point out with this, and, and we could probably move on after this, but uh, all I wanted to point out is that there have been some events in Shadowrun's long history. Um, as will happen with anything that goes on for 25 plus years, 30 years, I guess, at this point is, you know, you will, you will occasionally have a few misfires.
0: Well, the Yucatan War was set up really early I was set on way back in third edition, I believe. It was, um, I think it was started. It was kind of mentioned a lot in the, uh, the mercenaries book. Yeah. Fields and of fire. It was fle- and then it was fleshed out more in the, as we mentioned before, year of the comet. And it wasn't until towards fourth edition when it became less of a Cold War jungle combat sort of thing where it was skirm- border skirmishes to an all out war. And then that ended up getting resolved. And. Honestly, to me, I, I even way back in Mercenaries, I, it just didn't I, that plot line never resonated with me because I, I wanted, I wanted urban struggles, not to go out in the yeah. jungle and. Well, and you toms. know, there's, there's
3: there's a hippie saying, oh, and that's just that's just me. There, there's this hippie saying of like, what if there is a war and nobody came? And to me, that was always the problem with the Yucatan conflict, is that in all the rest of the game, you're you're playing somewhere between say Leverage, Heat, and the A Team. Uh, and then suddenly you're like, Hey, wh- who wants to go play predator or platoon? And most shadow are like, not it. You know, I like my air conditioning. <laughs> you know, I, there's no hookers in the jungle. Uh, well, you know, it, it's your average shadow runner. Well, it's just not, <laughs> it just doesn't interest them. Just like it doesn't interest your average GM, you know, who doesn't want to relocate and go run a full on combat. Uh, sort of, you know, predator meets platoon thing. So, I mean, I think it was one of of many things wrong with that kind of event.
0: It did do one good thing for me, though. It kind of distracted Aslan, so I could run an adventure in uh, in Austin.
2: Yeah, finally. Well, let's you know, let's try and end this on a high note because I think you know we all are, are big fans of Shadowrun. We all love the oh, setting. Oh yeah. Why don't we talk about like our one favorite thing about the setting? And I'm gonna hit Daryl first. Because he he likes to go first. Trust me. (laughs)
0: Uh, It's because it is just so depth. We're talking about all these source books and everything. Even for the old editions where the rules are not even remotely the rules, even, even if I'm playing a third edition game, I really can't use the stats in a first edition book, let alone if I'm playing fourth or fifth edition of Shadowrun. Those rules aren't good. I still pull those books down and read them because they're so fascinating. The world has so much depth. And if you read the timeline of what happened before the game and you look at it and says, wow, that's a lot of stuff that happened in a really short amount of time. That's kind of weird. I can't see. That's kind of breaking. Oh, here's all the stuff that happened since the game launched. So, yeah, it's kind of always been that busy. There's always stuff happening in the game. And every single thing that happens plays out across the game too uh duckles on's will is probably the biggest one that just spread out everywhere but you've got the Uni- universal brotherhood even if you weren't playing in seattle or playing in chicago the universal brotherhood was everywhere the bugs were everywhere even if you're not playing in the united states the renwaku archaeology shutdown still really hurt renwaku is one of the major yeah. companies in that world and the ripple effects on how they approach technology and how they approach their R and D and the people and the other corporations trying to take advantage of them in that situation, especially because this also came shortly after the corporate war, which broke out because of Dunkelzon's will and some of the uh, board of director changes and all the, uh, seriously, I can go on and on. <laughs> the setting has so much depth to it. Yes. Yeah. You can get lost in this world. I would have it, to say it's for me, amazing. it's
2: the, it's the characters. Like they have these really cool movers and shakers that um now some of them some of them moved on and some of them we just kind of never talk about anymore, which is a shame, but there are just some great characters in Shadowrun to talk about. And of course there's Harlequin, there's Aaron the Scribe, there's Dunkelzon, there's Loafweir, which we've mentioned Loafwear many times on the show.
0: There's and Then you've got just the plain old humans, uh smiling Bandit strikes well, yeah, again. Ha, ha Yeah, ha. yeah,
2: yeah. You got all you got all the great, you know, Deckers, you got um The guys we've talked about before that we think are are super cool, like Hatchet Man or Ghost Who Walks Inside. There's just a lot of great, cool characters out there to talk about that make Shadowrun what it is. So for me, I definitely, I, I think if my favorite part, if I had to pick just one, is a cast of very memorable, very interesting characters. As well as the things that Daryl mentioned. But let's hear from Bull. What's your favorite thing about Shadowrun? The setting.
4: Uh, Bull the York Decker, of course.
2: <laughs> no, One uh, of those characters.
4: <laughs> I think it was, it's a combination of everything you guys just said, and it's the, the ability to play in that world. It's not just that there was a great world building, and it's not just that there's these great NPCs, but it's the, the ability to get in and to interact and to become a part of that world, whether it's just in your own home game or eventually getting lucky enough to become a freelancer and and worming your way in as a character into the fiction. In in either way, it's it was always fascinating to me to be on this ground level of to, to just basically play this this ground level character, build him up and eventually start interacting, you know. It was like the first time you met Ghost and Sally, I had read the books not too long, too long beforehand. And then we ran into them and ended up working on a Shadowrun together with them. And that was awesome and it was cool and you know, it was something you didn't get to do too terribly often because usually the NPCs in a setting are so stupidly overpowered that it's impossible to, to mix and match. Or to you know, so important in
2: setting, like Luke Skywalker in Star Wars.
4: Right. I mean, yeah, they're either so important or they're just so powerful that you can't really easily work with them as on, a, on any sort of equal footing.
2: The Elminster Syndrome.
4: Yeah, but with Shadowrun, because the the power curve of the game is gentle enough that even when you're working with a character that's low or to mid-level karma, and you've got like a prime runner character, the power level doesn't tend to scale so much that it's, it's not like the difference between a 10th and a 20th level character in D&D. It's, you know, it's a much closer curve. They just have more options rather than bigger options. I think that was always Shadowrun's appeal for me, is that it just it let me play and it let me be a part of the world, and it let me feel like I could have an impact on the world.
0: So just to sum up, it to use one of our little terms that we I think we got this one via either Ross or Daryl Hardy, uh, white space. As much detail as this world has, there's still a lot of white space for the characters to go and have their adventures. Yes. Well, I
2: think he's also talking about interactivity. He's he's liking the fact that because the timeline advances and becomes the meta plot kind of in many ways reflects uh, you know what's been going on with the game industry. Um, he feels like his he's making you know a change on that world over time. Yep. What about you, Rusty? Favorite uh, thing about Shadowrun?
3: I'm actually in the complete opposite boat, uh, of kind of all three answers, uh, in that to me, it hasn't been the Titanic events or the big names or interacting with the big names. It's always been my favorite. Uh, it's been the fact that, that deep down inside, it's still more or less the real world. And it's the stories that don't make the headlines in the history books. As awesome as it was, when Shadowrunners ran in and helped liberate the renraku ecology, I actually felt prouder when uh, a few sessions before that, my Shadowrunner had helped protect a soup kitchen from some gangers uh, for nothing. You know, we just get a soup every time we go by. And, and I've got a buddy who has been running a street shaman for years. That cares more about Big Jim's street clinic than he does Big Jim's Shadowrunner career. He's this, this, the shaman street healer guy. And, and I think we've, we've put more work over the years into fleshing out that one neighborhood of Puyallup than we have in dropping big names and meta plots. And, and to me, that's always been the part that appeals to me is that it's, it's just as playable at either extreme. And the stakes feel just as high, you know, whether it's an action movie where you're rescuing the president from ninjas, or it's an action movie where you're rescuing, you know, a soup kitchen from a local gang. The game works just as well. That's just tremendous to me, the, the capacity for detail. And I guess this is more towards the white space that you mentioned. But I've always loved the stories that fall through the cracks and the threats that fall through the cracks, the, the kind of mundane real world stuff and the fact there's room for it. Uh, that's what I've dug about all the, the setting books and the source books and
2: stuff. Rusty, so did anyone else rusty. get in
0: their head? Are you a bad enough dude to rescue? The I, God
2: damn it. You beat me to it.
0: <laughs> finally beat you to one. Finally beat you to one. <laughs> 44 episodes and I finally
2: beat you to one. <laughs> I was just about to say it. So, that's so, why I hey, got it out real fast when you started talking.
4: So, Rusty, <laughs> yeah, you're gonna write you're gonna write that adventure for me now, right?
3: No, <laughs> not for standard missions, pay. Ah, uh, <laughs> uh,
4: Oh,
3: no, it's uh, yeah, but like I said, just that's what's that's what I've always loved about it is you can, you know, you can scale it up or down almost as high as you want to, and you can still call your game Shadowrun and be absolutely correct.
2: You know, on a side note, uh, my friend John Dunn and I uh, we brainstormed some uh, some great Shadowrun adventures uh, that we te- we termed uh, Shadowrun Mohawks would be the name of the line, and they would yeah. just be Mohawk style adventures. The first one is called All Elves Go to Heaven, and I've ran this as a con game actually, uh, where you as Shadowrunners are hired by a mafia boss to escort his daughter on her, her uh, initiation into magic when she goes on her metaplaner quest. The, the follow-ups in the line are, send in the trolls, and it only a ninja can kill a ninja.
3: Yeah, i mean, Nice.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're going to wrap this up here because we're uh, getting close to the end of the bar night here. The Imperial Guard is, is looking in, and uh, the barkeep, Mac, is giving us the eye, and he's letting us know it's, it's getting close to the end here. So let's uh, just ask our guests, if you were to tell our listeners one book that they should look at to learn more about the Shadowrun setting. I mean, and I, I think the core book obviously would be cheating in this case. <laughs> so not the Shadowrun core book, but what book would you say people should look at, Uh, Rusty? Shit. Um, this,
3: <laughs> this is an impossible question. Uh, if I wanted people to just get a feel and, and a flavor uh, and the fluff, and I can't say the SR5 core book, then I would go old school and say the SR1 core book. Find it on, find <laughs> it on eBay for cheap. It's got the gorgeous Elmore cover, uh, and it starts with the fiction. Oh, that is fiction. a fantastic yeah. cover. Yeah, and it, it starts with the fiction that got me to read the rest of the book.
2: All right. What about you, Bull?
4: I've got two. One's a novel. Well, one's sort of a novel. It's a collection of short stories. Braided anthology. Into the Shadows. Exactly. Oh my God! Into the
2: Shadows, fantastic.
4: Would be my my first thing. That was actually what I got handed really early on when I was really starting to get into Shadowrun. I got handed that and said, "Here, read this. This is everything you need to know."
2: Whitechapel Rose. Would,
4: the other one that I would suggest would be actually the original Seattle Sourcebook, just because that one just oozes that. Or Shadowbeat, actually,
3: because either oh, of Shadowbeat.
4: those books those books just ooze flavor and and just...
0: Like the phone book ads all scattered yeah. throughout okay. there? The phone Shadow book Beans, ads of course...
2: or Shadow Beat's um, TV guide Yet listing another. that they had. Yet another Nigel Finley, by the way, is yeah. Shadow Beat.
4: Either of those books are just... they just, Like I said, they just ooze out just atmosphere from every pore.
0: Uh, for, for me, source book wise, there's one that would be an easy name. Uh, I'm going to go with it. It has a few problems and there's a couple of continuity errors in it, but it's still pretty good. The Sixth World Almanac. Yeah. I really like that book. It's a good summary. It's a good read-up. Uh, all the history you've been talking about, it breaks down every single one of these events year by year leading up to uh, the 4th edition timeline. Novel-wise, there's one and only book that you can recommend, in my opinion, and that's 2XS by Nigel Finley. It has everything you need to know about Shatteron World wrapped up in one of the best noir hardboiled detective books you'll ever read
2: there are so many to choose from i think i would have to you know if i just want to say one thing that's a nice quick easy read that will get you into it i'm going to go back also old school and i'm going to say um street samurai catalog that's that's just one way to you know as we said it's it was the first time anybody would ever tried to do world building in a equipment guide <laughs> yeah so uh yeah check that out um all right, now if we want to find out more about our guests and what they're up to and what their latest thing is, um, why don't you tell us uh, what that is all about, uh, Mr. Zimmerman?
3: At present, uh, I am carefully balancing my freelance career uh, with the Shadowrun side of things. Uh, I'm also the, the lead writer on the Satellite Rain video game, which is the spiritual successor of the old Syndicate and Syndicate Wars franchises. So I'm working on that and on some fiction Ooh. accompanying that. I recently launched my own little game company, Wordsmith Games. Come friend me on Facebook. Um, and just finished a Kickstarter for my first game book there, Strays, while still working on Shadowrun stuff in the spirit of, of Nigel Findlay, uh, and the hard boiled samurai level, you know, street guy stuff. Uh, my character Kincaid from Neat. Uh, I've been greenlit for longer fiction for him uh, and I'm currently wading through some Shattera novels
2: Oh, well, please tell me that the name of your next book is Nifty
3: it is not
2: because <laughs> <laughs> that would just be amazing or Keen I would also accept Keen
3: <laughs> I'm afraid we're, we're going in a different direction right All right, well
2: at least I made you smile yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bull, what's your latest thing, and where can we find out more about you? My latest
4: thing is same thing I've pretty much always been working on for the last few years, and that's Shadowrun Missions, which is our living campaign. Uh, we're currently several missions, uh, several official released missions into the Chicago campaign, with a whole lot more to come. You can find out more about that. Um, we have a Shadowrun Missions Facebook page, which is just facebook.com slash Shadowrun. SR missions, I think. And, or on the forums or wherever else, there's a dozen different places you can look for us. We run the living campaign at pretty much any convention we can get agents at. And, uh, we ran through, I think the total was something like 1,400 players at Gen Con this year, which is by far a new record for us. Uh, it was yeah. just a massive amount. It was like 150 Shadowrun games. It was just massive. So.
2: Also, I want to quickly mention, uh, <clears throat> Something that's new for me, uh, if I may. Sure. T- testing Bull's theory that nobody buys uh, setting books anymore. We have just released the new book for the Shintar setting called The Malakar Dominion here from Evil Beagle Games. That's the first book that uh, I've produced as managing director for Evil Beagle Games. And it kind of takes a look at a really cool sort of... Um, Dark Thieves Guild-type area of Shintar for people to check out. Of course, it is not just for GMs. It also has uh, new edges for players, uh, and it's for the Savage Worlds game system. Cool. I, I, I'm sorry, Bull. I just had to throw no, in that's,
4: there. It's perfectly alright. And, and <laughs> I will note that my thing about buying that is it does apply a little more to Shadowrun, I think, than to like fantasy settings, especially original fantasy settings. Since Shatterrun's so rooted in the real world, it's a lot easier for GMs to make up their own stuff. Right, so I think that's also has an impact on some of that,
2: okay well, uh Daryl, unless there's anything else you got? I'm gonna close this out.
0: go read more shadowrun books playing even if you even if you've got issues the, the game set the game rules can be a little bit crunchy for a lot of people's tastes. screw it run it in savage worlds, run it in hero system, run it in anything. the setting is amazing and get the books. it is. I cannot recommend them highly enough. I still read them, even if I'm not even planning on running a Shadowrun game.
2: Well, uh, certainly uh, check out things like Universal Brotherhood, if you've heard us uh, go, go on about it. Check out the uh, new stuff coming out from Rusty and Bull. And check out Shadowrun Returns Dragonfall Director's Cut. Um, those are just a few places to look. So there's that, and until next time, may all your hits be crits.
3: Hi, this is Sean Patrick Fannin, founder and chief visionary officer of Evil Beagle Games. We're the publisher of Shintar, the epic high fantasy setting for Savage Worlds. It's like Lord of the Rings meets Die Hard. We also publish the very cool and quirky deck-building game, Colossal Clash. The Beagle's proud to sponsor the Gamer's Tavern, a place where you can relax and get schooled at the same time. Seriously, you listen to these guys, you get free points on your Gamer Knowledge Score. So grab a drink and listen to my friends Ross Watson and Daryl Mott as they interview the best and the brightest in the hobby about all kinds of great stuff, or live play something really cool at the virtual table. And remember, Evil Beagle Games. Bad dog, good games. Now somebody beer me!